0: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. I have the pleasure today to be speaking again with William Howe. William, the first time that we talked uh, uh, about your uh, previous book, um, it wasn't too painful, so I had the chance to have you back. Will, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me back. Yes, it's it's a pleasure. Um, uh, Some people who listen to the podcast may uh, remember who you are, but maybe you can very briefly tell us again who you are, but more important than that... If you could also introduce us to your co-authors who aren't on the call, but who clearly have contributed to uh, this book. So so tell us about Saul Jackson and John Rogowski, who are the co-authors of The Wartime President, Executive Influence, and the Nationalizing Politics of Threat. Sure. So um, Saul Jackson and John Rogowski were both former students of mine, and Saul now is a fellow at the Brookings Institution, and John has moved on and is an assistant professor at uh, um, WashU in St. Louis. Um, and they both were brought on as co-authors on this project because they both made such foundational contributions to it, both in the analysis and, frankly, in the in the conceptual stages and trying to think about what was this book trying to accomplish. Um, the book, as I originally conceived it, uh, was meant to be a, a sort of short limited critique of a set of very expansive claims about the effects of war on presidential power at home. And as I worked through the empirics, I started off with the empirical stuff, um, you know, I came across some findings that, frankly, I wasn't expecting, and so I had to reconceive what this book was actually going to look like, and both Saul and John just, John just played a big roles in, in, in that endeavor, and so yeah, it brought up the shoulders. We'll- yeah, what resulted is is, is definitely not a uh, a small book. This is a this is a big, meaty book with a lot in it. Um, and so, for that reason, let's let's get started talking about the book. Um, you begin the book by by talking about exactly what you just mentioned, which is um, you you identify some of the things that are wrong with the with the existing scholarship on war in the presidency. But wonder if you could summarize this? What you refer to as the standard view, and and what you believe. Uh, was in need of refinement as, as you refer in the book. So, you know, the most serious thinking done on the relationships between war and our domestic politics, uh, particularly among presidency scholars, was done in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and basically the arguments that were made then have persisted and carried on to today. And they take they, they, there is slight variants of it, but the basic view is one that what wars do is they utterly remake our politics, and they remake our politics in ways that are unambiguously in the favor of the presidency, such that the president can get done all sorts of things that he couldn't possibly get done um, during times of peace, as long as we are standing on a war footing. Um, and they had in mind the Civil War, World War One, World War Two, and it simply isn't clear that whatever lessons those wars afford carry over into um, more modern wars, and and it also isn't clear what the sort of theoretical foundations are of those sorts of claims. Why is it would our would, for instance, members of Congress vote in favor of the president's policy initiative in war when they wouldn't in peace? What is it about war that's doing this? And I think that the standard account um, doesn't provide uh, kind of a, a, a firm set of micro-foundations on which to advance such claims. And so those are, those are things that we try to do so in the book. Yeah, and, and as you suggest, um, what actually a war is is, is a big part of, of the existing scholarship and is a big part of how you set up your analysis. So um, how did you define war? Um, when does the war start, when does the war end, and and what then does that uh, mean about the, the cases that you include in the book for wartime and non-wartime? Well, so we have in mind big military engagements. So, you know, we're looking at um, primarily World War II on, so we look at World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the First Persian Gulf War, and the post-9-11 period. Um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, of course, there are lots of lower-level military engagements, and one might, I would invite future scholars to try to think about how, you know, our involvement in, our limited involvement in Kosovo, for instance, had an effect on our domestic politics. Um, And we, in this book, leave that as an open question. We're trying to look at how these big, big wars reshaped our our domestic politics. Um, As you say, it also is an open question, you know, when does a war begin, when does a war end? And we try to be as clear and as transparent as we possibly can um, in the book, uh, recognizing that alternative definitions might be employed, and so we do a lot of kind of robustness checks and sensitivity analysis to see whether or not there's something special about the particular definition that we employ. So, what you developed in the book is this um, policy priority model, and and without delving too deeply, I'll allow you to delve as deeply as you want into formal modeling. What is your central argument about the presidency, and uh, what would that argument uh, lead us to expect in terms of how presidents behave and how Congress behaves? Yeah, you know the the model that we introduce um, is cast in very general terms. And it's done so purposefully. There isn't, you know, war isn't a specific parameter. We're trying to try to trying to get a handle on well, what is it that wars might change about the relationship between the president and the Congress that's meaningful? And the thing that we're really focusing in on are the ways in which the terms of policy debates can shift, and they can shift in ways that privilege a presidential perspective that's distinctly national in scope, um, and and uh, at, to the detriment of local consideration. So if you think, and we suggest that this is an appropriate way to think, that um, uh, relationships between Congress and the president are in part dictated by the fact that the president cares about what's good for the country as a whole, whereas members of Congress are torn between what's good for the country versus what's good for their district or state, and those aren't one and the same, Um, that what we show is that, well, if you fix the kind of ideological or partisan disagreement that might be going on between Congress and the president and just change what those underlying um, policy terms, deliberations about, you know, do I care about primarily what's good for the district or what's good for the state, you change – uh, that particular parameter, what you find is that when our politics is nationalized, that is, legislators are paying more attention to what's good for the country as a whole, they show greater deference to greater support for the president's preferred policy. Um, so that's what the model is designed to show. That, huh, when our politics is nationalized, the president does better. And then what we go on to show is sort of empirically, look, there are lots of reasons to believe that at least some wars, have that effect. That's what wars do. They nationalize our politics. Not all wars do, and those that don't do as much, um, we shouldn't expect presidents to reap uh, a whole lot of policy gains. But when our politics nationalize, presidents do better. Yeah, and, and the evidence you find, uh, as you suggest, there's uh, some very supportive and some that, that runs a little counter. In chapter four, you write, "Congressional appropriations more closely adhere to the president's preferences during war." than during peace. But in Chapter 5, you're right, members of Congress did not line up behind the President in consistent ways with the termination of every war we analyzed. Members of Congress shifted away from the President. I wonder if this is what we saw last week in regard to Syria. I wonder if you can, you know, sort of link what you found to sort of the back and forth uh, and the gameplay that we saw between the President and Congress in regard to both and, and what what the country was going to do in Syria? How does your, the Syria case fit into the the evidence that you find? Well let me back up just a bit and say yeah. that I think that the big theme of Obama's presidency has been one of de-escalation. Um, now the de-escalation hasn't occurred incrementally or monotonically, but it the, the broad theme is one where you know we are out of Iraq, we're scheduled to get out of Afghanistan in 2014. And the president has announced his intentions to scale back certain dimensions of the war on terror, um, and that's so that's a, a big arc of uh, big developments under this president. Another big development, it seems to me, is that he's had a harder and harder time of advancing his domestic policy agenda over the course of his tenure in office. Suggesting that those two trends may actually be somewhat related, we see that um, we see members of Congress shifting away from the president when there's a shift from war to peace at the end of the Vietnam War, at the end of the, uh, the Korean War, at the end of World War II, um, and 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 we try to provide some kind of a theoretical rationale for why your domestic policy fortunes may be linked to what's going on um, abroad and how big a war, what kind of a war is is, is being um, undertaken. With regard to Syria in particular, what I would say is that um, Syria, seems to me, was presented as a a, a local short-term um, military strike that didn't stand much of a chance of reversing these larger trends, which is uh, about de-escalation, and a return to uh concerns that are are local and purely domestic in nature. Um and so had we actually waged a strike in Syria, I wouldn't have expected suddenly the President's policy fortunes to have opened up and and you know members of Congress to promptly start um, um, uh lining up behind the President in ways that you really did see post nine eleven. You really did see uh with the outbreak of World War two. One of the things that you you um, include and you write about is um, the way in which the president and members of Congress seek out information, um, and and so your suggestion is that, that members of Congress are at this information disadvantage, and in certain circumstances they, if it, it behooves them, they they um, take on the cost of acquiring additional information, perhaps beyond their locality to the national level. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What how does that add to your, your understanding of these relationships, these informational uh, acquisition issues? Yeah, I think that's sort of undergirding a lot of what the, the theoretical model is doing. It's suggesting that, well, what did, what is the advantage that presidents have when our politics are nationalized? And I'd say a couple things. One is that, look, the president represents the country as a, as a whole, and so um, he quite naturally has, uh a a a, a he, you know his senses are particularly attuned to what's good for the country as a whole in ways that that they're, they're less attuned for individual legislators. um but what one of the things that follows from that is that then there is this huge bureaucratic apparatus which is feeding the president all kinds of information um about what is good for the country um what should you know what What kinds of policies ought he to be pushing? And when you think about, well, what is the relationship between policies that we write into law and actual changes in the material world, that relationship isn't is always clear. Um, And the president has informational advantages when the discussion is about what's good for the country. And we don't presume, though, that the president knows what is good for any particular district Within, you know, represented by an individual legislator in Congress. So this is part of, of why why would a legislator, right, who suddenly cares a little bit more about the national outcomes, say, all right, I'm going to get behind to the president. What's driving uh, much of what's going on in the model, at least, is this recognition that well, well, the president simply knows more about what's good for the country as a whole, and so I may agree or disagree with him politically. But because he knows more, I've got greater incentives to back policies that better reflect his policy preferences. What I I found really interesting about about the book were were these anomalies that you write about um, and and the very interesting cases that you you present at the the tail end of the book. And and this actually also relates to the the photograph that you you chose to use on the cover, this photograph of, of LBJ. So I wonder... Maybe just very briefly talk about what the photograph is for those that, that are, don't have the book in front of them, and how the LBJ case uh, fits into the story that you're telling. Is is he the, an anomaly that, that um, sticks out from the theory, or does he support the theory? What does that What does that case study do for the book? Yeah, in some ways, the the escalation in Vietnam is the case that our larger argument um, that is most problematic for our larger argument. Um, You Here, what you have in the story that we tell in the book is one where LBJ enjoys these huge domestic policy achievements um, in 64 and 65 um, that he is worried about um, Congress's willingness to subsequently come through and fund these new policy programs, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and the like. Okay, so what does he do? He goes, he starts escalating in Vietnam, in part, out of concern for the sort of the fate of his his uh, Great Society uh, achievements. Um, and so he starts escalating, but he escalates, he doesn't want to escalate too much, because if he escalates too much, then there are going to be a set of budgetary considerations that kick in. He doesn't, so, and so he's playing this little dance that goes on for a number of years, where He he says, look, I've got it covered in Vietnam, but it's not a full-blown war yet. And then when we, you know, Johnson actually does um, with the Tet Offensive um, recognize that the Vietnam War is a proper war, he promptly decides not to run for re-election. So here we've got the story of, um, well, huge peacetime domestic policy achievements that are trying to be protected by going to war. And that's that's not the kind of general patterns that we're identifying, um, and that it runs against a larger argument, which is what, what wars can do is nationalize our politics and create new opportunities to make domestic policy achievements. So we want to be upfront. You know, this isn't these aren't hard and fast rules. Um, we're trying to underscore a logic that that plays out often in our politics, but that don't strictly govern how you know. You, if, you, if you're the president, you can't reflexi- reflexively expect members of Congress to come to your aid and get behind you just because you send troops abroad. Um, sometimes things don't, you know, work in very contrary ways, and I think that the outbreak of Vietnam War is one such case. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the real strengths of the book and, and, and the balance that you show between this um, theoretical development, the empiricism, but also. The, uh, the case studies really do make it a very balanced and, and uh, very interesting book. Um, you have been very productive. Is there anything coming next from you? Uh, shall I even ask, is there another project? Is the, this project uh, being extended in any way? You've sort of hinted at a couple of uh, uh, spin-offs from this. Are these spin-offs that you're going to pursue or are you handing these over to the rest of the uh, presidential research community? Uh, I'd love it if some of the other members of the presidential research community would take some of these arguments and push back on them and extend them. Um, next up for me is uh, a project I'm, I'm just launching now, trying to think about Obama's efforts to reshape um, education policy through uh, this Race to the Top initiative and the selective granting of waivers under No Child Left Behind. Um, war does not figure prominently in this story, but presidential power and... Um, issues of federalism are front and center. So that's what's next up on my plate. Yeah, well, I look forward to it. Um, uh, Will's book, uh, The Wartime President, Executive Influence and the Nationalizing Politics of Threat, that he's written with Saul Jackman and John Rogowski, who's published uh, this year by University of Chicago Press. Will, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Heath, so It's so good to talk to you.